Section 8 of Gaudium Crucis, A Meditation for Good Friday, by Walter Lowry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Seventh Word, Filial Trust. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Luke 23, 46, quoted from Psalm 31, 5. Trust in God. We are struck at once by the contrast between the filial confidence of this word and the despairing note of the cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? There needs no subtlety of exegist to detect here the joy of trustful repose upon the goodness of God, the Son's confidence in the Father's care. It is remarkable in both these cases that the unpremeditated cry which is wrung from our Lord's lips is expressed in the language of the Psalter. This shows not only Jesus' familiarity with the Scriptures, which he accounted as his daily bread, it proves further the enduring worth of the Old Testament, and especially the Psalter, as an expression of the religious nature of man, his Godward consciousness at its highest. Yet it justifies, too, our instinctive tendency to put into the old words a new and distinctively Christian meaning. We cannot in every place apply the parable of the old bottles which are unserviceable for the new wine, but here Jesus fills the old expression with a totally new significance, undreamt of by the psalmist. It was a triumph of faith in the psalmist to commend his spirit to God in the trust that he would save him from death. But Jesus, in the very moment of death, triumphed in the assurance that God could save him through death. Yet the old words suffice to express this new hope. I have said in another connection, in view of Jesus' feeling of desertion, that his death was hardly an example of Christian dying. We may say now, in view of his last word from the cross, that his was the first Christian death. This cry of Jesus has been echoed again and again by generations of disciples who have lived and died in him. The new meaning which Jesus attached to these words was expressed more plainly by the martyr Stephen, the first to suffer in his name, who cried out to him who had gone before to show the way and to prepare a place, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The belief that God will receive the spirit at death, that to be away from the home of the body is to be at home with the Lord, has become so much a commonplace of Christian thought that we hardly detect the newness of this hope in Jesus' utterance, and scarcely can credit the fact that the Old Testament saints lacked this assurance of faith. It is exceedingly difficult to state accurately the attitude of a pious Israelite towards the question of life after death. It is even difficult for us to realize that such a hope constituted no part of his faith in God. It is certain that the Old Testament formulated no desirable picture of life beyond the grave, and that the Old Testament saints cherished no lucid hope of personal immortality. Their personality was merged in the family and the nation. In his posterity, the individual survived. And yet, the hope of eternal life was logically justified by their faith in God as a righteous God, and this logical corollary of their faith was fondly apprehended. Belief in the righteousness of God is the backbone of the Bible. 
it is the constant factor which unifies the development from the old testament to the new and unites both as an organic whole if god is righteous and omnipotent righteous men must be adequately rewarded and the wicked condignly punished the old testament believer affirmed that this righteous equivalence is a fact taking merely the earthly life into account as the sphere of god's judgment manifestly it is the rule and the moral government of the world but manifestly there are many exceptions and the absolute righteousness of god can adore no exception the pious israelite of the calamitous days of the later kingdom and the exile was constantly preoccupied by this problem of reward this is the theme of the book of job and nowhere is the inadequacy of the dogmatic solution more mercilessly revealed it might do for job's friends to deny the difficulty by affirming that if job is unfortunate he must be wicked but for the afflicted man who is conscious of his own integrity there is no such escape again and again there rose to the lips of persecuted saints a cry which was almost a profession of faith in a future life in which god's righteousness would be fully vindicated so job cried but i know that my vindicator liveth and that he shall stand up at the last upon the earth and after my skin hath been thus destroyed yet from my flesh shall i see god whom i shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another though this may not mean precisely what we have been accustomed to suppose it has a right to its place in our burial office for it is the seed of the later hope of a life beyond the grave such a hope as this emerges frequently as an expression of personal experience in the psalter and in the days of public calamity when the nation itself was regarded as the persecuted and afflicted servant of jehovah this problem of reward pressed upon the prophets with still greater severity what it was asked finally what if righteousness demand the sacrifice of life itself where then can be the reward this side of the grave isaiah answers therefore will i divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the proud because he poured out his soul unto death the word therefore and because has all the force of man's faith in god's righteousness whatever may be the meaning of these words as isaiah uttered them they have justly been applied to christ and there can be no doubt that in the logic of this illiative particle he found strong comfort as he poured out his soul unto death jesus's faith in the righteousness of god implied reward for duty done either here or hereafter the father but it was not upon god's righteousness alone that jesus relied his confidence was founded far more upon his intimate personal relation to god as father this word father is not found in the psalm from which jesus borrowed the words of his last cry from the cross it is a significant addition for it transforms the expression into one of filial confidence here again we find in jesus's teaching a feature which was old and yet new god is sometimes spoken of in the old testament as the father of the nation collectively and later jewish usage particularly in the time of our lord employed this title not infrequently with a more individual reference the growth of this usage in favor of the title heavenly father is accounted for 
first of all by the disposition to avoid the utterance of the expressed names of God. This, in turn, was a consequence of an increasing emphasis in later Judaism upon the awful transcendence of the deity. In dread reverence for God, his name was replaced in common use by a periphrasis. He was described as the highest, the blessed, the power, or as the Father in heaven. Jesus himself observed this scruple, perhaps more consistently than our Greek gospel seemed to indicate, but the fact that before all other names of God he preferred this last designation, and employed it with a frequency unparalleled in Jewish literature, is significant of the new conception of God which he possessed and endeavored to impart to his disciples. An exclusive emphasis upon the transcendence of God was matched and balanced by a name which drew him as father close to his children. Jesus appropriated this name and filled it with a richer content. Old as this name was, Jesus made it the symbol of all that was most original in his contribution to the religious consciousness of mankind. It is the summary of all that he had to teach about God. Jesus' doctrine of the divine fatherhood was not based upon God's activity in creation or upon any aboriginal relation between God and man. This was substantially the pagan notion, to which St. Paul did not hesitate to appeal in preaching to the Athenians. For we are also his offspring, as certain even of your own poets have said. It is true that Jesus interpreted the fatherhood of God in the most universal sense, affirming that his loving care was shown toward all his creatures, his fatherly love toward all men, bad men as well as good. For your Father in heaven maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. But at this universal conception of God's fatherly goodness, Jesus had arrived through the most intimate and personal experience of God as his Father. It appears that the Gospel of St. Matthew most correctly reflects the usage of Jesus, representing that, except in direct address to God, he never used the term Father without the adjunct in heaven, and that in prayer he addressed God as my Father. It is clear from all the Gospels that he never so associated himself with his disciples as to speak of God as our Father. This phrase occurs in the prayer which he taught his disciples to make, but which he did not make in common with them. Substantially, St. John interprets aright the significance of Jesus' use of the possessive pronoun when he represents that throughout his ministry Jesus spoke of God as my Father, and that only at the end, when he had magnified to the utmost the reality and intimacy of this relationship, did he make it over to his disciples as their own possession, saying, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. That cry of Jesus from the cross, My God, my God, was not more intimate in its personal approbation of God than the address my Father, or simply Father. There was something so impressive in Jesus' use of this name that the word has been preserved, even by the Greek-speaking churches, in the language of which Jesus uttered it, as in the case of the cry, Eli, Eli, and the Amen. Unfortunately, in our English version, translated by Verily, which Jesus used in a fashion peculiar to himself as an introduction to his solemn assertions. In the form Abba, 
the definite article is joined to the aramaic word for father it means strictly the father but was commonly used also in a possessive sense as equivalent to my or our father this word may owe its survival in christian use to the fact that it was the first word of the prayer which our lord taught his disciples our father and st paul may have had this prayer in mind in the two passages where he cites this name as a symbol of the spirit of adoption because ye are sons god sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father but it is also recorded as the first word of our lord's own prayer in the garden when he bowed his will to the will of his father and there could be no doubt that what made this word so memorable was jesus's own utterance of it this word which he uttered finally upon the cross is the surest token of his filial confidence in the moment of death jesus employed several parables to illustrate the fatherhood of god fundamental to them all is the notion not that god is to be conceived after the image of man but that human perfections are a faint reflection of the divine or as st paul says substantially the divine fatherhood is the aboriginal fatherhood after which every fatherhood on earth is patterned parables might faintly illustrate what god is as father but jesus's own relation to god was the conclusive testimony and proof of the divine fatherhood jesus was conscious of a unique and incomparable relation to god how he attained that consciousness the gospels give us no hint rather we must say that they represent him as one who like a child growing up with a serene consciousness of a father's presence and loving care cannot point to a time when he first knew his parent all that was unique in his consciousness of essential sonship jesus jealously guarded as his own but his consciousness of the universal fatherhood of god he communicated to his disciples he said my father he said also your father but he never put himself upon the same plane with his disciples by the use of such a phrase as our father the church has always recognized that the knowledge of god as father and access to this father god has been attained through jesus christ hence the distinctive christian name for god is not our father simply but the god and father of our lord jesus christ sonship jesus appeared among men as the son of god in a unique sense it is true that he never expressly applied to himself this name as he never expressly called himself the christ his self-chosen appellation was the son of man but for all that his claim is none the less clear and certain his consciousness of exclusive and privileged sonship is expressed as we have already had occasion to note by the way in which he speaks of god as my father other traits in the gospels which cannot be so briefly adduced concur in proving that this was the fundamental factor in his messianic consciousness jesus claimed to be the son of god in an exclusive sense he did not seek to impart to his disciples all that he was conscious of being and possessing as the son of god yet he taught them to look to god as their father and to behave themselves in a way befitting god's sons hence his own relation to god unique as it is illustrates the religious and moral relation of every son to his heavenly father what it is to be a son in the perfection of likeness and love jesus would have his disciples learn in his person and the disciples 
having come to know sonship in its highest instance were not disposed to dwell upon the lowest relations to which this conception might be applied it seems perfectly logical to say that because god is to be regarded as the father of all men therefore all men indiscriminately are his sons but it would be a perfectly perverse use of logic for it is a fact that in the new testament the notion of sonship expresses the exalted privilege of membership in the kingdom of god love is substantially what is expressed by the name father and because god's love is universal he may be called the father of all men on the other hand the name son is meant to express something more than the mere fact that one has a father in the notion of sonship there is implied far more stringently to the hebrew than to us likeness and obedience as well as privilege moral likeness to god and obedience to him are proofs of sonship and conditions of its privilege it is manifest that all do not fulfill these conditions and attain this status it is true that the parable of the prodigal son if its allegorical interpretation is to be pressed in detail implies that a sinner remains a son even in his estrangement from god we must remember however that we are here dealing with figurative language it must endeavor to avoid the logomachy into which men commonly fall in debating this subject there can be no doubt that the express point of this parable is the proof of god's fatherly love towards even the sinner in his estrangement but if there is any significance at all in the usage of words it is important here to observe that jesus does not use the term son of god to describe the common status of men but to indicate the acme of religious attainment and privilege it is certain that he did not regard the sum of all the benefits he brought to men as a mere restitution of an original status which had been lost through sin he brought men into a new relation to god and for this relation sonship is a summary expression when st john regards divine sonship as conditioned by a new birth he rightly interprets the newness of the relationship and its peculiar privilege as st paul does also by the notion of adoption the fact is that the name son of god expresses a degree of perfection which is unattainable even to christ's disciples under earthly conditions and can be realized like the perfected kingdom only in the coming age a heavenly perfection is expected of god's sons which they can in part realize in this world but only in the resurrection does their state completely match their name divine sonship appears as the supreme and final attainment of man in the striking passage where jesus says of those that are accounted worthy to attain to that world and the resurrection from the dead that they are equal unto angels and are sons of god being sons of the resurrection the relation between father and son which is exhibited in the human family afforded jesus a many-sided parable which he applied in various ways he used it to illustrate the universal love of god in the reception of repentant sinners or his particular care for those who call upon him in filial confidence or again to find the behavior of genuine sons but he employed it also to explain the peculiar relation which subsists between the heavenly father and himself as the only son it is as a parable we must understand jesus's word in matthew eleven twenty seven where he says all things have been delivered unto me of my father 
and no one knoweth the Son save the Father, neither doth any know the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. The exclusive intimacy which exists between a father and a son, and between a son and a father, explains the unique position of Jesus as the only possible mediator of a true knowledge of God. Both in form and content, this passage is closely akin to many of the characteristic utterances recorded in the fourth gospel. But there the father is no longer a parabolic expression. It has become a fixed title for God, as he is known, first of all, in his relation to the only begotten Son, and then through him the revealer is apprehended as Father by all who are born from above. How Jesus understood the peculiar privilege of sonship which he claimed for himself, one may learn more clearly from the parable of the wicked husbandman. The notion of sonship here emerges in a new and distinctive form. When the Lord of the vineyard sends his son, who is sharply distinguished from the servants, and recognized as the heir to whom reverence and rule are due by natural right. While the narrative in St. Matthew's Gospel is simply the expression, my son, St. Luke says, my beloved son, and St. Mark has the more pointed and probable phrase, he had one left, a beloved son. This phrase precisely matches in meaning the only begotten son, which was a favorite term with St. John. Both expressions denote the rightful authority of the only Son to rule in God's kingdom. This reflects the prophecy of Psalm 2, 6-9, the text which first gave currency to the name Son of God as a messianic title. But in Jesus' use of it, the name Son has become more than a mere figure of speech. It denotes a substantial and natural relationship. As the Son of God, Jesus felt himself called to a universal dominion, not such dominion, however, as a fortunate Jewish general might acquire, but such as God himself exercises. Such is the lofty consciousness which is implied in Jesus' last word from the cross. He never was so clear in his claim of royal authority as when he approached in his death. He faced death's last moment calling upon God his Father, and committing confidently to his keeping not only his personal existence, but his royal rights as son. Jesus reigns from the tree, and though his rule be ignored or rejected, he reigns nevertheless by right divine as son. End of section 8. End of Gaudium Crucis. A Meditation for Good Friday by Walter Lowry.